Have you ever wondered how your sales performance compares against your competitors and peers? The B2B Sales Benchmark Report provides the definitive guide to what success looks like in 2021. See how you compare in terms of win rate, sales cycle, average deal value, relationships, and engagement. You can see the results and get the full report at ebster.com forward slash B2B dash sales dash benchmarks. This is Sales Ops Demystified, the number one most downloaded podcast in sales operations. We invite the brightest minds in sales operations onto the show to deconstruct the why, what, and how behind rep productivity, forecasting, metrics, and all things revenue. This podcast is brought to you by Ebster, the leading customer engagement platform for Salesforce. Hello, and welcome to another very special episode of the Sales Ops Demystified Podcast. We're joined by Simon Gilks, who has extensive experience both in sales, 12 years, and also in sales operations at companies such as Go Carless, yep. Zero, yep. and maybe you said Sage. Sage. So fintech, SaaS world. Um, Simon, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so we were actually just chatting, and I didn't normally ask this question first about your sales experience, and you were telling me about one deal that you that you did that was. It sounds quite extreme. If you'd like to share that with the audience before we kick off. Yeah, I think, um, so I spent 12 years in sales, did many, many roles. And one of the roles, which was probably the toughest, but I learned the most, was selling corporate hospitality. Literally cold calling straight from a yellow page. It's making in excess of 200 cold calls a day. Um, And I was selling at the time four tickets to the Monaco Grand Prix with private flights, watching from a private yacht. Found a company in Ireland, and um, the man said he'd phone me back, which took me by surprise because it was um, very expensive. And he phoned me back and agreed to take the, the sort of the, the tickets, and it was sixty thousand pounds for four tickets to the Monaco Grand Prix. And um, when I asked which clients he was taking, it was him and three of his friends that sort of clubbed together for a lads' weekend, which what a sale. Seems quite a nice way to spend £15,000 on a lads weekend. I'm not sure if I could get that signed off at home, though. That sounds amazing, but it sounds like a brutally on it, um, brutally hard role, like trying yeah. to sell that from God. Um, shifting now, how did you move from that sales experience into sales operations? I suppose after 12 years in sales, I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to go down the sort of normal sales, sales manager route. I wanted to try something different. And why was that? Be honest, I don't think I was probably mature enough to be a sales manager at the time. And I was quite, you know, I was used to being in control of my own destiny and earning my own commission. I didn't want to then be reliant on six people, seven people to hit the number for me to earn my commission. And plus, I've been doing it for 12 years, wanted to try something completely different. Um, so I moved into product marketing originally, and I spent two years as a product marketing manager covering sort of UK, Ireland, Scandinavia, and South Africa. I just got to travel a lot. And 
do something completely different. And it was then that my managing director said, do you want to do sales ops? I'd never even heard of it at that point. Which, which company was this? So I was um, actually a company called RS Components before Zero, And we were setting up a sort of sales operations function. They just started to create it. Um, and yeah, he sort of explained what it was. And I finally realized actually what I was doing in product marketing was so closely aligned with what sales operations and enablement was all about that I sort of, yeah, took a leap of faith, jumped over, and yeah, seven years later, I'm still doing it. I really enjoy it. And you had also said before the interview that this was probably the biggest sales ops team I've yeah. ever heard. Yeah, yeah, we like because it was a brand. It was a big company. We, so we were seven thousand people globally as a company, and they sort of went around the business. And you, you do a bit of sales ops, so you, so you, they pulled it all together. And there was 160 people in sales operations. There's absolutely not 160 people in sales operations there anymore. Mm-hmm. But actually, it was about pulling the resources and working through who was, who wasn't, and what was sales operations. Sure. And then from there, you moved to zero. Yeah, yeah. As as a Fell up for all. Yeah, I, I went there. They didn't have sales operations. Mm-hmm. So um, they were pretty early stage. They employed like 88 people in the UK at the time. Yeah. Um, and I went in to set up sales operations for them, which after about a year, we sort of merged into sort of a commercial slash revenue operations model. Mm-hmm. And um, I ran that for them for a mere for three years. What are your thoughts on this shift towards revenue, revenue operations? So personally, I'm a big fan. I, I think that... Um, too many businesses have too many silos mm. and there's always a tension between sort of revenue generating functions like sales and marketing mainly. And I think it's healthy to have a tension. I've been to so many meetings where you turn up and you argue over a number. Yeah. You debate whose number's right, why my number's right. And actually by putting it together as revenue operations, you have a holistic view. You have a single source of the truth that's looking at every aspect of how does a company generate revenue. I, I, I totally agree with you, Simon, but my problem here is that we named this podcast nine months ago, Sales Ops. <laughs> and then just as we named this, now there's this new thing. Anyway, um, cool. So then you went from, you fed up the sales operations team at Zero yep. and then moved on. Yeah. Cool. And then did you set up another sales operations no, team? No, I, I went to I went to Sage. So I think mean, most people know Sage. Sage. Yeah, 14,000 people. Globally, actually, our sales ops team was bigger than the one at RS Components. Oh, really? um, but again, it was a similar that like, sales ops didn't exist at Sage. They were 30 years old. It was only set up about six months before I joined. Yeah. And they did the same exercise. They went around the business and pulled everyone together and ended up with 300 people. But, you know, it was because Sage was so big and so complex because it grown through acquisition. So then we sort of looked at how do we sort of build out, you know, what is the right sales operation structure? Yeah. Um, but I, do you know what? I miss that craziness of a startup and a scale-up being yeah. in a sort of big 14,000-person company. So I spent a year there before sort of moving on to GoCardless. And how, when you joined GoCardless, how many sales of people and how many salespeople? So at GoCardless, when I joined, there were sort of two people in sales operations, but neither of them, that was their first, both of them, their first ever role in sales operations. Joe, Joe I believe. Joe Gates, yeah. So if you Google Joe Gates, everything, you can see Joe's interview. He's now spent it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Joe was an SDR at GoCardless, which was his first sort of proper job post-university in a commercial world. So he was an SDR, and then he transitioned to GoCardless into sales ops. And then we've got another guy, Chris, that had just moved over from the US and had sort of done some territory management and design work previously in various other sort of analytical roles and ended up in sales operations. So 
my role was to go in and sort of build out a sort of a more robust, more scalable function as GetCardless was scaling so quickly. And then right now, how many people in the sales ops team? So including myself, we've got seven in sales ops and sales enablement. And how many, roughly how many sales reps are you supporting? We're supporting at the moment, I would say, around sort of 90. Because we, yeah. we sort of cover the SDRs, the MDRs, the AEs, yeah. partnerships as well. Cool. And we sort of support many other functions around the business, but that's our core scope. So we're talking about like a 1 to 12 and a half ratio there. Yeah, you think that's about right, or are you looking to hire some more? We're looking to hire some more people ideally next year, yeah. To, to offer us a couple of aspects. I mean, because we cover the enablement side as well, because we hire so many people, um, you know, we want to bring in a dedicated trainer to work with ourselves, an enablement manager in the function. Mm. Um, and as we start to do more complex deals, we need to bring in someone to support from a deal desk perspective and really help us sort of drive the contracts through the business and take some of the sort of strain off the sales guys, but also the lawyers and finance to sort of call that together as a deal desk function. Nice. Um, can we shift now to the tech stack that you're using in GoPartners? Yeah. Um, yeah, most things. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're a typical startup scale-up where I think where you don't have any money. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you've got a bit of money, so you can't buy everything. Mm. And because there's probably a sales ops function didn't really exist, Everyone that wanted something just went and bought whatever they wanted or really? just put it on a company credit card yeah. or this, that, and the other. And we have a lot of technology, so one of my tasks is about decommissioning that, but we, we base ourselves on the Salesforce platform, essentially. Okay. Salesforce is our sort of hub, um, and we use, you know, as much that is native Salesforce for us. You know, so I think some of our key pieces of software are sort of, obviously, Salesforce, new voice media from a telephony perspective, at the moment, we use um, sort of Yesware for our sort of email campaign and sort of sequencing. Um, and then we use sort of Einstein Analytics. We're just launching partner communities. So we're sort of really embedded in Salesforce and everything else that sort of links to it. Got it. And I assume your team are responsible for the data quality in Salesforce. Yes. What are you currently doing? So what have we done previously? It's not much. Um, what, have we, what are we doing now? So essentially... We rebuilt Salesforce from the literally bottoms up to a brand new version of Salesforce because when Salesforce was implemented, like in many startups and scale-ups, it probably wasn't done with the sort of future in mind. It was there to serve a purpose at that moment in time. So we didn't have great processes to enable, you know, high-quality data. We had too many fields, too many duplicates of fields. We didn't really have anyone monitoring and tracking it. So it was a mess. It was a real mess, yeah. So we spent a few months with some consultants from scratch, rebuilt it to enable us that. We're now sort of working on a big sort of data project in Q3 and Q4 to ensure that our data is integrated across all of our platforms, including a core product mm -hmm. that is GoCardless to enable to have sort of a complete sync of everything so it is, mm -hmm. remains accurate. And then partnering with people like DMB and other sort of data providers to ensure that it's always up to date, it's accurate. And actually changing the culture that it doesn't sit with sales ops, it's everybody is accountable for data quality. Uh, yes. Because everyone looks at me and says, data's rubbish. Well, I, you know, I'm not putting the data in there, so we need to create that culture and train and give people the guidance mm. and make it easy for them to drive sort of data accuracy. And that leads very nicely onto the next, next mm -hmm. few questions is about your relationship with the sales team. Um, how would you go about making them do something extra to like improve data quality if they're like it's not getting me paid <laughs> i think so one of our core values as a business is start with why 
Nice. So, so it's a great book. Yeah, yeah. You get given that when you do. <laughs> no, we don't. I've read it though. But yeah, it's a great book. But we believe that we should always start with why. Like, as a company, we we really stand by our values. Mm-hmm. So I think by ensuring that we start with why and explain why we're doing it and get people's buying and engagement and actually talk to them about the value that it's going to add to them. And, you know, data accuracy is really easy to prove and demonstrate why it's important because I can really quickly turn that into a number in terms of how that's going to impact their commission because I'm going to reduce their sales cycle. I'm going to increase their close rate because I'm going to point them in the right direction of who they're going to go and talk to next rather than just sit there sort of playing around in rubbish data trying to find something that they realise it's a duplicate or they're speaking to the wrong person. So that's quite easy. But I think actually for us, it really starts our recruitment process and strategy by hiring the right people. Mm. So ensuring that they're ready for the sort of craziness of a startup and scale up and the constant change. You know, things don't stay still for long. You know, when I joined a year ago, it's a different world now. So by hiring people that are adaptable, prepared to change and understand the journey we're going on, doesn't seem to be too much of an issue so far. And we made some big changes and I haven't had a huge amount of pushback. There's because always edge cases, but because you hired the right people. I think so, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, how about making them more productive? What's something you've done in the last few months? Um, I suppose we're trying to do lots. I think productivity and improving that is so dependent business to business. You know, what makes us more productive will be completely different somewhere else. But some of the things that we're doing or have been doing is around um, sort of propensity to close and planning and giving them direction. So sort of looking at um, looking for lookalikes in our activities and our accounts and our opportunities, what works, what doesn't work, mm-hmm. where does our value proposition really fit, and sort of then pointing them in the direction of where to go and then li- aligning sales and marketing, which then drives that productivity, to reduce the need for them to sort of go out there and do a huge amount of planning themselves. We yeah. want to take the planning away from them so they can focus on the closing of the deals, which is where they get paid, right? And um, they're just like the robot. No, and I think, you know, our deals are pretty complex because of what we do. Yeah. So, you know, they need to be focused on that rather than on who do I find. Got it. And actually, one of the biggest things that's driven a massive increase in our ability to close is we used to have a sort of a combined SDR and MDR function. So... One minute they would do an outbound, then they would deal with an inbound, then they would deal with web chat. Yeah. We've actually separated that into specialist functions. We have a team dealing with the inbound activities mm-hmm. and a team dealing with the outbound. And aligning that outbound team with the AEs and the verticals they support has really driven a massive increase in high-quality pipeline. So actually, we're already seeing that the pipeline's better, we've got a better close rate, and we're talking to the right customers. Nice. So it's, it's been a big win for the AEs. That's nice. Um, Quick question, that's not the normal script. You, you, you were selling the virtues of revenue operations earlier, <laughs> but I have a problem here because yeah. you're currently running the sales operations. Yes. So elaborate. Yeah, look, as a business, um, it's something that I've proposed to the business. Oh, okay. We've proposed it, we've discussed it, but actually at this moment in time, because of how much there is on our agenda, you know, because of the growth rates we're going through, because of the international expansion, we've decided to keep them sort of separate at the moment to really apply that sort of specialist focus to that area so we don't get distracted because, I mean, it is easy to get distracted. And when we're aiming for huge growth rates, you know, hiring, you know, 150 people in a year, when we're opening in, you know, new markets. Since I joined, we opened, you know, France, Germany and the US in the last 12 months. Mm. 
you know, there's so much going on that actually we're keeping it separate for now, but working really, really closely together. Cool. Is there a marketing ops team? There is a, a small, you know, emerging marketing ops team. We hired a marketing ops manager this week. Uh, cool, yeah. He started on Tuesday yeah. um, and we have a small sort of subset of people. So we've got a person in the team that looks after sort of the marketing tech stack, so sort of centered around Pardot. Mm. You know, we've got an analyst in the team, we've got a manager and some other resource. And then from a, the other sort of function that I would normally position in, under revenue operations is the sort of customer success, yeah. that onboarding support and enablement. No, there's there's a couple of people that are doing that, um, but I wouldn't say there's a sort of a, a you know a built out dedicated team because they live in Salesforce, which is sat in sales operations. So it's sort of they don't really need the same level of team, but they do have an analyst that is diving into the insights of their data on a day to day basis. And so, do you report into the VP of Sales? I went to the Chief Revenue Officer. Oh, interesting. Cool. Who, in our world, so we, we have a CMO and a CRO, yeah. but the Chief Revenue Officer is responsible for all of the sort of sales, whether that's lead development, the closing of the deals, or the partnerships. Got it. And final question on structure. Do the FDRs and MDRs sit within marketing or sales? They sit within sales. Cool. Yeah, so there was a debate, but they sit within the sales function, and you know we're, we're sort of working towards a strategy to build our free global hub to to the UK, an Asia-Pacific, and an America's hub to support everyone sure. globally. Sure. Um, moving on to onboarding, now you mentioned 150 people in a year. Mm-hmm. What have you done in the onboarding process that's like increased ramp time? Um, so I think actually the biggest impact we've had in onboarding, especially as we're going internationally, is we fly everyone to London for two weeks. Nice. So even the Australian team, the US team, you know, there's a girl sat two desks down from me who's on new sort of technical sales, pre-sales consultant in the US, and she's here for two weeks, just to ensure that they understand who we are, why we are, what we are, and they go back with that culture and understand it. I think it's really difficult to sell a product or a company if you don't really understand who they are. It's, it's expensive and it's painful flying someone over from Australia for two weeks, but it's really important. So I think that has a big impact because it allows them to get up to speed really quickly. Because when you're remote, especially in a different time zone, you don't have the ability just to walk around the corner and ask someone a question or go and chase legal about signing off on a contract. Mm-hmm. So you need to come and build those relationships while you're here. So I think that was a big win for us. Mm-hmm. And hiring a sales enablement manager to focus on this now and actually look at our entire onboarding process. And we're looking at building out sort of an LMS platform to accelerate onboarding, but then take it to the next level and almost sort of create a sales university for career development. So that their sort of journey doesn't, you know, doesn't stop after eight weeks, essentially. Yeah. Nice. Um, but if they're going to scale a fee in the next two years, you guys hire a thousand people. Do you think you'll still be bringing everyone to London? I think you probably reach critical mass in market where you don't need to. Mm. So I think oh, okay. you know when we hit, yeah, you know, there's a hundred people in Australia. Mm. I don't think we'd probably need to because the culture's there and there's enough of the business and there's probably. So the support functions that they rely on the UK for would there be for be in country as well. Um, I think for certain roles we would, yeah. but probably not for everyone at that stage. Got it. Um, you know, the same as for certain roles, we fly them over for interviews as well. You know, when we had our Australian sort of ANZ GM, we had you know, three, four people over to the UK mm-hmm. for face-to-face interviews and present case studies, etc. Because it's just really important they understand who we are. You know as much as we understand who they are at that interview and onboarding process. Got it. Um, forecasting. 
<laughs> do you guys are you guys responsible for creating the forecast? What do yeah. you work? So you you take the data from Salesforce. Well, I suppose it depends if we're talking sort of so as a business, we typically operate quarterly. Mm. I run a weekly forecast meeting on a Thursday morning. That you run with all the sales managers. Yeah, so we have um so yeah, nine o'clock on a Thursday morning, we have the CRO, mm. we have the GMs and the sort of key sales leaders in a room. Well, we'll go through the forecast, we'll talk about what's their commit. What's their best case? You know, but actually, more importantly for us, what's their gut feel? Where do they realistically think they're going to land? Yeah. Um, you know, and we will sort of do a sort of a key deal review and look at what's making it up, deliver a level of confidence. Mm. Um, yeah, and we do that on a weekly basis. Cool. Um, and then, but if we're talking sort of more longer term, if we're talking our 2020 forecast and projections from now, that's run entirely within sales operations oh, really? in collaboration with finance. So they'll do sort of a top-down view, we'll do a bottoms-up mm-hmm. view and hopefully we'll meet in the middle yeah. and that's utilising Salesforce data plus understanding the vision and strategy for next year. And that's what you were doing, you're, you're doing a moment. Yeah, yeah, we're sort of in that process as we speak. Cool. And are you chairing that Thursday morning meeting personally? That's yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, but the collaboration between myself and the Chief Revenue Officer. But if, yeah, if he's not around, it still goes on and I chair sort of independently for me. I take more of an interest in the numbers. He takes more of an interest in the big deals that we're going to close that week, just so that he can scribble those names down and ensure he holds the GMs to account for closing them. Yeah, so we'll call them up. Yeah, exactly. Wednesday we closed. Exactly, especially when we're in the, you know, we've got three days left this quarter. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, before we hit Q4 and close the year, so yeah. for us that's really important. So if there's some big, well, maybe you shouldn't say, but there's probably some, it could be a stressful time right now for the chief revenue officer. So. <laughs> it's um, definitely a stressful time for him and the GMs at the moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It always is. That's you good know. to know. Yeah. Um, and not stressful for you? <laughs> Less so. I think it's a different kind of stress. Mm. You know, actually, this time of year is probably, for me, the most stressful time of year. Once we hit Q4, because it's about getting ready for the year. It's what are we doing? What's our plans? What's our roadmap? Quota, compensation. Mm you know, territory or sort of, you know, account allocation, yeah, everything, you know, so we're in the busy period for us, which is always dependent on the budget being signed off. Um, but at the end of the quarter, for certain people in my team is stressful and busy, especially if you're sort of the deal desk representative, you're potentially there as a gatekeeper on deals and ensuring mm-hmm. that they're going through, you know, chasing legal up and making sure it happens. Um. And now metrics. Now, so you've been in the sales ops game mm-hmm. for like seven years. What is a sales-related metric that you think is the coolest? I think my the, the my number one go-to at the moment is mm-hmm. my pipeline waterfall. What is that? Just so I, I look at my entire pipeline and what's happening to it, so I can see what pipeline I started the quarter with. For, what, for everybody, yeah, for everybody. I can drill down to a person, yeah. but you know do a vertical person, mm-hmm. country, no matter what. But essentially, I look at where did we start the quarter? What have we added in the quarter? Out of the opportunities that we're in quarter, what have we expanded them by? So are we, you know, are we growing our opportunities mm-hmm. from qualification as we progress them through? Um, we then look at sort of stuff that we've been brought in from a forward quarter and we brought it in early into this quarter. And then look at the flip side of that, what's gone out of the quarter? What have we closed last? What have we closed one? What have we shrunk and what have we pushed out to another quarter? And then okay. where are we projecting our pipeline lands? Because our pipeline's everything. Without it, we've not got anything to close. So we keep a really close eye on that to really understand what's going on. And we can then readdress the focus of our SDR, MDR, marketing function. And, you know, at the moment, we, we're running sort of a spiff with our AEs as well in terms of generating their own pipeline mm-hmm. to really set us up for the big growth numbers we need to hit 2020. 
So you're telling your A's that actually you're going to get more commission if you go and do your own thing. Yeah, I don't think you can just sit there these days and wait for a lead to come to you. It'd be amazing if you could. Yeah. Um, there's not many companies that generate enough leads mm. to sustain the growth. Now, we could grow without having to self-generate, but you're only going to earn more money, you're going to hit your numbers, and you can continue yeah. to grow if you do it as well yourself. Yeah, nice. Now, that sounds really good, but I'm not sure if it was a metric. Okay. <laughs> um, Being harsh. Yeah, I think, you know, in, in terms of... In terms of metrics, that we look at most of the standard stuff, mm. right? But I think our go-to at the moment is our actually in our lead development function. Again, it comes down to pipeline. Mm. Is what are they doing? You know, and the probably the number one hygiene metric at the moment is when we have the handover period from an SDR to an AE, mm. ensuring that the AE picks it up and responds to that really, really quickly. Uh, so you're looking at the time. Yeah, is that, is, yeah. So we have the you know, so we come in, we hand an SQL over to an AE. Yeah. They're, they then have the decision because it's their pipeline. So they decide whether I accept this as an opportunity yeah. or not. Yeah. Because, you know, once it's in their pipeline, there's only two outcomes. It's one or lost. I'm not having them disqualify and say, oh, I was given a rubbish lead. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one or lost. So what you find is the SDR or MDR wants them to convert it there and then because they get paid commission on that. Mm. But on the, the only conversion to opportunities. They, they get paid commission, uh, commission on the number of opportunities created With from, them, yeah. from, from their SQLs. Yeah. And we would expect that you know ninety percent of their SQLs to be accepted, um, but if if it's the end of the month and the A is closing deals, the MDR SDR wants it converted now, yeah. but the A is not not worried about that. He's got yeah. three days to close all of his deals, so we really keep an eye on that. And I'm probably bugging all of the A's on Chatter at the moment yeah. in Salesforce about what's going on with this one. Can you convert it? Some get it from both sides. Yeah, the SDR coming to you being like Jamie having converted this and. You know, we only deal slip, right? So that time, and time's an important metric, no matter what stage of the journey, to ensure we book it and bill it in quarter. Mm. We don't want them slipping out, you know, especially slipping into the next year. That could be make or break for the year's numbers, essentially. Nice. Um, and the final question, who has taught you the most in sales operations? Uh, it's, it's a tough one. I think mean, I end up in sales ops because of one guy, a guy called Ian Leonard at RS Components, where he sort of sold sales ops to me and at times I've hated him for it and at times I've loved him for it but I think the person that's probably taught me the most is a guy called Simon McIver at Zero at New Zealand because he's the one person he knew everything no matter what the number the process the metric the text like he just knew it off the top of his head yeah he was he was a genius when it came to sort of the whole operational world of a commercial business and he was tough right but he kept you on your toes and he forced you to think about things differently, force you to look at things you'd never even looked at before. And I think as a result of working with him, yeah, I learned a huge amount. And he was the guy sat in New Zealand, next door CFO and CEO, that pulled together all of the sales operations functions globally. What was his name? Simon McIver. Simon McIver. Um, yeah. Simon. Let me tell you what, what I particularly liked about that. I think the best, the, the, this might be the best answer to the question I asked about getting buy-in. And you like completely blew away at Monsanto because you were like, actually, the best thing to do is hire the right people. And that's like super interesting. And I think that's a really, really good answer. I like that when I asked you about uh, influencing people as well, I start with why. And you quoted, it's not really a sales off thing, but the fact that you quoted a value from the company is like testament to the, to the culture, I guess, and the values of GoCarta. So I think that's really good. Um, and then you're onboarding, these are all really, really simple things, but you're onboarding about bringing people over. Yeah. I think also really, really, really important. That definitely has a massive impact. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge for us. I just to link into your values, I think there's a company, I've worked for companies where every corridor you walk down, there's a value post. Yeah. You get a mug every year with a new yeah. value on it. We don't have any of that. There's one place to find our values, and that's mm-hmm. on our sort of our internal website, essentially. Yeah. And every person that starts has a 45-minute values interview with two random people from the business. That's such a good idea. Yeah. And you could get a strong yes from the hiring manager that you can technically do the job. And if it's a no values, you don't yeah. get the job. How, how many values are there? Like yeah, we have four values, okay. essentially. And they're really simple, yeah. So it's just start with why, map of integrity, um, be humble, and now you've completely framed me on the fourth oh, one. But on. yeah, um, but they're, they're really, you know, they're just really simple mm-hmm. values that, you know, everyone has to you know, sort of hold themselves accountable to. And, you know, we're in performance review time at the moment. Everyone's got to have their performance review done by Friday. There's two elements. It's how you done in your job and how you done against the values. Nice. And both of those are compared in the sort of managing um, sort of calibration sessions and looking at how people are actually doing. Nice. Well, there's a little startup lesson, business <laughs> lesson. Um, so, I mean, thank you. That was incredible. Like, many, many insights. I'm sure that's very valuable for the audience. Thanks, I mean, it's really good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sales Ops Demystified podcast. If you are listening on a podcast listening application, then please subscribe, rate, and review. And if you have any questions about the show, if you know a guest, or if you have any questions about sales operations, just hit me up at tomhunt at ebster.com. That's tomhunt at ebster.com.